Lorraine Fox is someone who knows the financial investment world very well. Um, she's, you know, aside from the wealth management space, she's been a marketing executive. She's uh, led teams at Sun, Oracle, some of the big, um, you know, Fortune 100 uh, technological companies that have led uh, great, adv- great advances in technology. She's also very influential in Silicon Valley. She's uh, been voted as the top 100 women of influence in Silicon Valley for 2013. Um, so we are very glad to have Lorraine Fox on this show. Um, Lorraine, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be a part of it. And thank you for reaching out to me. Yeah, of course. So Lorraine, let's kind of talk about your background. You know, I know uh, you started, you know, prior to Sun, you've done many stints, other things, but Sun is notable. And then, you know, obviously it got acquired by Oracle. Um, You know, why don't we start there, kind of perhaps talk about what you did, uh, what kind of technology team you led there um, and things like that. Yeah, well, at at Sun, I had a very, very long tenure there and did a lot of different things, but I'm mostly focused on software and from a product marketing and strategic marketing standpoint within the context of a hardware company. I mean, you know, Sun was basically a box company um, and the software was really important. I mean, we had... and. Bill Joy, who is still one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life, um, who developed um, the Unix operating system that we used. And um, and then applications were uh, slowly built on top of on top of that. It, it did take a while, but, you know, Sun started um, and really got its strength in the technical workstation space. But Sun was an innovator. Technical workstations didn't really exist before Sun came into this onto the scene in the in the 1980s. So I was very very happy to have experienced um, that kind of high growth and um, and innovation. And uh, Sun actually, in terms of enterprise companies, was the fastest growing company um, to reach a billion dollars in revenue. So I mean, we were really on a rocket ship for quite some time. Um, and it was wonderful to be a part of that. I met so many amazing people and this was really my first job after business school. Um, but I met so many amazing people, Andy Bechtelsheim, Bill Joy, Scott McNeely, Ed Zander. I mean, the, the list goes on and on, but these people, Carol Bartz, I don't want to forget Carol at all. Bernie LaCruz, um, one of my early mentors, um, all these people were such great business people and knew how to manage through high growth. They understood how to take risks, but they also understood how to make progress and win. You know, you talk about innovation and progress, you know, risk that is calculated and measured for success. Um, You know, I remember Sun as being an innovator because I started off as a Java developer, obviously Java's right? Um, so tell us about how, when you led teams at Sun, you know, how did you set up innovation? How, tell it, talk to us about how can, you know, companies today perhaps use that as an example? Uh, I mean, this is a loaded question, obviously, but I, yeah. you know, maybe you start with some of the stories that you've had experienced at Sun 
uh, success stories of innovation where you were actually able to measure the progress and success of those innovative efforts and initiatives? Yeah, well, I think the progress was best measured in in revenue and and revenue and growth. But, you know, I really have to give all credit to the engineers who were really the innovators and the marketing people kind of helped package, promote, price, um, uh, what they did. But I mean, to have incredible people like Andy Bechtelsheim, uh, you know, developing hardware, how could you lose? So I think there was a recognition, even though the company was young, it was early, you know, there were a lot of people that had never done what we were doing before, but there was, there was a trust there. And if you trusted people to, um, and kind of got out of their way, you know, and obviously this was all managed within a, you know, kind of very strict financial um, uh, budget. But if you got out of their way, they would um, achieve great things. And obviously, you know, deadlines slipped and everything else. But um, but we in the early days, we never stopped focusing. And Scott McNeely used to have this great expression, all the wood behind one arrow. So that meant we were all focused on the same goals. And I think that is really, really important for a company. So if I had to break it down, you need people who are visionaries, who can see the future and help get you there. And then you need to be able to execute like crazy because, right. you know, um, if you don't, somebody else will. You know, the, I mean, um, Andy Grove had this expression, only the paranoid survive. And we thought all the time about the competition, how to take down the competition and, you know, and and recognize the competition. And we had some big competition in those days. I mean, IBM being, you know, a very considerable competitor, but we managed, you know, it's all about kind of one step at a time, getting those first deals done, trying to, you know, get yourself on the map, more and more customers, you know, expanding out of the um, technical workstation space when that had become saturated and trying to get um, into um, uh, the internet, the um, uh, uh, information technology part of a company, part of its infrastructure was also another transition that the company made and um, and did very well. I mean, nothing's a straight path, but you can't lose sight. I think one thing that Scott McNeely did really, really well was he trusted the engineers. He trusted the engineers and he really, really supported the engineers. You, you know, that's such a key takeaway for companies these days. You know, number one is, you know, you're talking about cultural aspects within a team. You're talking about trust. You're yeah. talking about leadership, having a vision. And also there's, ex, you know, leadership and execution as well. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like a three-prong approach where you have yeah. trust, vision, leadership. Um, yeah. And uh, that, you know, how do you, you know, what would your advice be for a company that's sort of going down an innovation initiative uh, these days? You know, how, you know, if you were to be the CEO and how would you kind of, yeah, bring this to this sort of a culture and yeah. mentality to, you know, how do you get this, communicate this across the, across the organization? Well, first of all, you really have to start with an understanding of the market and where 
you know, and where it's going. And you have to make some bets, some really, really important bets. Um, and then you have to be very, very clear on how you're going to execute and, and meet milestones and get to the market and test if what you're doing really, if there's demand there or not. But, you know, um, so those things are are really, really critical to to get going. It's not easy. You know, there are a lot of Me Too products out there. So to truly innovate and to really, you know, lead a market is difficult. I mean, you know, there, I think there's a few great ones per decade, but, you know, it is interesting too, if you kind of switch forward to Google, you know, clearly there were so many search engine companies before Google came about, but they truly innovated and I think had a bigger mission. They wanted to manage all the information. They wanted to manage all the data and they wanted to do it in a very simple and scalable way. They're still doing it. You know? I mean, and, and other people, even Microsoft, couldn't, couldn't ever compete with them. Yeah, and you know, it's almost like you kind of have to sustain that innovation, right? I think yes. Clayton Christensen, uh, you know, who wrote Innovator's Dilemma, yeah. Yeah. book talks about that you know how to sustain that type of an innovation um yeah. I, I think you touch upon a very key point there you know about sustainable innovation there yeah and you know i think there's a lot of data to support that small teams are are better at innovating too i mean you know uh one thing we learned at sun was product design by committee does not work like let andy bettelshan do his thing you know <laughs> Oh my God! Product design, but committee—that—that's that, you're setting up for failure right there. It, <laughs> yeah, failure, slowness. I mean, you know, you look at the true innovators and true visionaries, and you know they have to surround themselves by people who can execute like crazy. I mean, Larry Ellison is another incredible example. If you want to kind of switch to Oracle, I mean, Larry, and still to this day, he is the product visionary. He is one of the few real visionaries of the industry. I mean, it was Larry who really saw in the early, um, late 90s, early 2000s, like enterprise software should be consolidated and he moved to consolidate um, the industry. But, you know, when I was there too, I mean, Oracle was doubling in size every year. I mean, it was kind of impossible to keep up with the growth. You just did, everyone worked really hard put their heads down, did the best job we could. But the interesting thing there too was that it was very clear. Larry was the visionary. The rest of us were executing on his vision. And that went up to senior vice presidents who at the time were rolling up their shirt sleeves and coding. You know, no one was just kind of managing from on high. Everyone was a part of it. Right. And, um, you know, when you go on this execution mode, you know, we also talked about testing and learning from the market. You know, what, how can teams effectively do that? Because it, it is going to take some time for the engineering team to deliver a product and bring it to that, make it market ready. Um, yeah. You know, how can a marketing team, um, you know, sort of test the waters before a product is launched? Yeah, well, um we, product management and product marketing play a key role. I mean, reaching out to early customers, getting early customers to commit to using the product, you know, beta te alpha testing, beta testing. I mean, 
you know, being able to debug things that needed to be debugged. I mean, those were all, you know, parts of, um, they all play a very, very critical role. You can't, you know, you can't just let engineers design um, without having marketing be a part of it too, because, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you, you know, there's feature creep and you need to really figure out with real customers what features are the most important and then roll out from there. Um, so simplicity of design, meeting the needs, and then enhancing on that original effort over time as you get more market feedback in the market and you see where the demand is, that's so important. So, so how do you, you know, when you learn when there's feedback from the market, you know, how do you kind of feed that into your engineering team? What, you know, what kind of processes did you guys Boy, do? yeah, there are a lot of different processes that we used. Um, one um, effort that I really loved was focus groups because engineers love to design for each other. And I, I, I remember the first focus group we did at Sun, we had engineers on one side of the mirror and we brought in customers and uh, asked them a lot of different questions. And one of the engineers turned to me and said, why didn't you get smarter customers? And my response was, because we're not designing for you, we're designing for them. That's the whole point of this. And it was, you know, there was a big aha moment, you know, because it was like, hey, these are the people that are writing the checks that pay your salary, you know? <laughs> so I think being able for people to make that link and kind of get out of their space and kind of expand um, their knowledge at the end um, of the sessions, it was really, really useful. So direct customer feedback, incredibly important. Yeah. And, you know, these days, I think we talk about engineers having empathy, right? I mean, it's it's kind of an empathetic style of software development and product development where you're be. not. Yes, it has to be, right? Uh, almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's great. You know, looking back, uh, you know, obviously, you know, sometimes things don't go perfect. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> looking back, what are things, you know, in in Oracle as well as in Sun? Perhaps, can, you know, if you were to say, like, I wish we could have done this better. You know, what what maybe learnings or improvement you think? Well. Um, Again, this was in the name of innovation, but uh, I'll pick a time at Sun where we actually wanted to expand the workstation market. And we had a team on the East Coast that was trying to develop um, a low, kind of a uh, reduced functionality um, machine. And even the operating system was different, which we later learned was a mistake. But um, but. We, it didn't stop us from, you know, pursuing that effort. I mean, obviously it was under a budget and, and things like that, but, you know, um, it was interesting to see market reception to it. Ultimately it didn't, you know, it didn't work out, but it still allowed us to innovate and learn a lot. And even from your failures, you can learn about, you know, again, if you have an open environment and you're not penalized for failure, but 
Um, but again, approach it from like, what did we learn from this and how do we, how do we, you know, not repeat the same mistakes? Because as we all know, I mean, I love this Einstein quote, if you don't learn from, and, and I'm, this is not a direct quote, but it's essentially, you know, if you keep repeating the same mistakes, that's the definition of insanity. So the point is, the point is to, um, to learn from, from your mistakes and keep innovating, um, going forward. I mean, Java was another classic example you brought up that you were a Java developer. Um, again, you know, Java was a little skunk works project and it almost got killed a couple of times, you know, um, and what a loss would it have been if it was killed. Oh my God. Yeah. Or, you know, just licensed away, but yeah, I mean, it was very, very difficult and culturally to kind of do something like Java when, you know, you've got a big iron hardware company. But fortunately, um, the people who, who ran that, you know, they had a little skunk works and it was in a completely different location. And, um, and they were protected and Scott protected them and, um, and, and the executives um, running the effort um, also uh, did everything they could to protect the effort. And, there was a lot of progress made, a lot of pressure, a lot of progress. How do you, um, you know, obviously Sun is a big company, Oracle, you know, mm-hmm. acquired an Oracle's billion dollars, you know, multi-billion. But um, if you talk about the SMB market, right, uh, more the yeah. mid-size market, how would you see them accommodating these risks you know, and, you know, kind of like, and being innovative, like Mm -hmm. what are some strategies that they can deploy uh, to build that sort of uh, culture within the organization budget and the size that they have and their ROI? Yeah. Well, I'm most familiar with venture back companies um, actually, because I was uh, previously a venture capitalist and, you know, again, it starts, it's people and ideas. Those, those are the two things that you always start with and then, you know, give, and then set up some milestones, give, you know, give the entrepreneurs some investment dollars, see what happens and, um, and proceed from there. I mean, if things look good, you build out the management team, you prove the market, you know, and venture capitalists obviously provide the capital to kind of make that work and scale. Now, not every company achieves that kind of scale. They may have misjudged the market. They may not have been able to execute on the plan. You know, they may not have had the right team of people to make it happen. The market may have never, may never emerge. But again, you can learn from those things and eventually, you know, you can get to a place. I mean, I'll, I'll give um, a couple of examples. I mean, one, um, I was a seed investor in a company and kind of found um, uh, someone who was working on this idea. And, it, you know, uh, it was probably one of the first cloud computing companies, you know, before cloud computing became um, a well-accepted term. And it took a while. And there were several mistakes that we made along the way and money that got wasted. But um, but the vision remained the same, and eventually the company had a successful exit and was acquired by by Symantec. But you know, it did take a while, and there were kind of some twists and turns as we were trying to get to this place. But 
Um, but it was, it was a very, very important and long lesson. And I give the founders a lot of credit for sticking, for sticking with it because it did, it did take a fairly long time. I mean, we started this in probably 1998, 1999, where things were booming and, you know, money was readily available. And then of course there was a pullback and, um, you know, we'd kind of gotten a, gotten ahead of ourselves in terms of where the technology really was. It takes a while. I mean, it can, you may have to iterate a long time for the technology to truly work and scale. And that was really the case with this company, but they did it. Yeah. I mean, how it does take a while. What would you, you know, kind of with your venture backing and other investments, what would you say is a while, a term for, you know, what's the duration you think? is reasonable and maybe you can give us a range or you know yeah i mean this company from inception to um being acquired took almost 10 years got it that was was a long time companies take a longer time now to to mature i mean it's not like you know and especially right now i mean the public markets are i would say kind of on on a pause during the yeah but this pandemic Um, um so yeah go ahead no, I was just going to say in terms of like you talked about like the maturity where they gained the traction mm-hmm. and things like that. And then, you know, find, you know, the 10 year time frame for an acquisition. Yeah. What's a reasonable time frame kind of to expect sort of that maturity to happen, like to say, you know what, this is becoming successful. You know, yeah. What, what, yeah. How, what might be the duration? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. You kind of get to a point with companies once they start, you know, first they're in development, then they get to a point, hopefully, where they start generating some revenue. And then from that first, you know, million dollars of revenue, you've got to scale up to 10 million, 20 million. Sometimes you see a lot of companies fall out after 20 million. They just can't scale above there. The market never emerges. The team doesn't execute. Um uh, et cetera. But, you know, to really, truly scale, get beyond that. And I'm talking about software companies to get beyond that kind of $20 million in annual revenue, and then continue to build from there. Boy, that's where the tough slogging comes in. So what also I'm thinking is really important too, is, you know, the team may change too. Once you get into generating revenue Typically what happens are, you know, especially on the sales side, the person who got you those first, you know, five to 10 customers may not be the person to scale to the next thousand customers. So sometimes, and I I think it's pretty typical, you know, that there are changes in like VP of sales at, at that time, because again, you need, we, we used to have this expression in the early days when you're just taking a product to market, you kind of need people who eat raw meat for breakfast, if you, if you will. <laughs> you know, they're just, they don't need infrastructure. They're just completely motivated. And they're going to go out and get you your first customers. But after that, you need to put process in place. You need to put structure in place. You have, um, uh, you know, field, uh, sales people in different, you need to start regional sales, you may expand internationally. And that takes a different mindset of someone to organize and figure out the compensation, 
etc., in order to continue to grow the company. That's a really difficult transition. And, you know, sometimes people go through a few VP sales in order to get kind of the right person who can take um, take the hill, if you will, and take the team and, and move it forward in a very um, uh, focused and disciplined way. I would yeah. say the first, the first salespeople you have, maybe discipline isn't the most important you know, quality. It's right. more like right. get the sale. <laughs> That's awesome. I am interrupting this engaging conversation to tell you about ModeStack, a digital product agency that makes this podcast possible. Struggling with staff and not sure how to get ahead? Keep hearing about the cloud and how it can change your team? Have an application that you invested lots of money and haven't seen growth? These are all questions that our team has worked on answering for years. Learn more at themodestack.com. Let's get back to the show. Now, uh, so we kind of talked your journey uh, from all, you know, Sun, VC, mm-hmm. you know, uh, companies, and now you're in the wealth management space. Yeah. With Aspirient. Um, you know, the, it's a great journey. Like, tell us a little bit about what got you into wealth management. Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting. I love working with entrepreneurs. And some, you know, I got the feeling, you know, when uh, when an entrepreneur is so focused and you're working 12, you know, 15-hour days, on building your business, the rest of your life gets neglected. And that's true of your financial life too. And a lot of times when people have, entrepreneurs have exits for the first time, they really don't know what to do. You know, um, they want to keep going, but they don't really have a concept of like, okay, what am I going to do with the money that I just made? What is its purpose? You know, do, do I need to work anymore? Am I doing this for fun? How do I want to set up my family? All these kinds of questions. And that's where, and most wealth management, I think, doesn't do a great job of that. I mean, the industry's getting better. It's maturing now. But I mean, the financial plan, being tax aware, um, estate planning, all in addition to investing, which is all important. But, you know, again, um, if you're taking risk in your personal life, sometimes you can have a different approach in the money that you've made. Um, you know, some of it you can still take a lot of risk with, but but the rest of it, I mean, you really need to define what your purpose is, what your goals are, both short-term and long-term, and then create kind of a, a investment portfolio that's going to meet those needs. You know, and it's yeah. hard for entrepreneurs to get there. So it's almost like being the, for a VC, you're sort of like a custodian for growth for yeah. businesses. Now it's you've kind of shifted gears to in your right. personal life. You've shifted gears yeah. to the individual. Uh, you know, right. being, so you know what led you to that. You know what sparked that interest. Well, it, it's kind of interesting, but it it started from kind of a personal inquiry where I, I thought about it myself, and I thought, you know. I've never been well-served. And if I haven't been well-served, then I bet a lot of other people haven't been well-served either. And so I have this idea in my mind of what it meant to serve clients really well, in particular um, entrepreneurs. And that led me to Experient. And what I loved about Experient too is it started with a vision. So the vision of our CEO and founder um, was that 
he wanted to consolidate. And actually, he was with my CFO back in the day. And he saw the value of being an independent fiduciary. And what he really wanted to do was consolidate the best advisors, the best investment platform, and the best people, and build a nationwide platform that could scale and serve people very, especially a lot of first generation wealth and families really, really well. And so um, I was so attracted to the vision and also the people, you know, were and continue to be fantastic. I mean, I really feel like, you know, we've been able to attract the best people. I mean, the estate planning that we do is so great for people, the tax advice, the investment advice. I mean, it's, it's all there. And People, people can have peace of mind. People really experience peace of mind knowing that there's one place, you know, one firm that they can go to and receive this kind of a customized approach that's really about um, individuals, their families, et cetera, and, and figuring out how to um, meet needs, whether it's I want to fund, you know, 10 more companies in my life and, and work on 10 more companies to I want to start a foundation. You know, I mean, the it's so different, the kind of um, ideas that people have. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like experience kind of set up the right way with the right vision, the team. Mm-hmm. And you guys also have, I mean, from your perspective, you've had a personal, you know, you've yeah. not been served well. There's a personal cost. Um, and, yeah. you know, there's passion and things like that. You know, how do you think that, uh, you know, wealth management, other wealth management companies can get it wrong? You know, like w- what are some mistakes that they tend to make in that space? Um, well, you know, it's interesting because in some sense, you know, there's over like 14,000 wealth management firms in the U.S. So that means, you know, the barrier to entry is very, very low, you know, if you can have so many. But again, it's very, very similar to startup companies. Most of them don't scale beyond a point. They remain small. Um, This business really is about scale. And if you can figure out how to scale and you have the will and the determination to create a scalable enterprise, it, you know, it really it really works well, but, you know, there, there are a lot of other, you know, inter, intervening factors, I think that, you know, don't um, allow firms to scale. I mean, one is there's nothing, you know, with 14,000 firms, how do you differentiate yourself? Right. Very, very difficult to market. And then also the SEC um, and FINRA have certain restrictions, like you can't advertise this and that. So then, you know, what novel marketing approaches can you use to kind of get your name out there, get people attracted to what you're doing, offer them something um, uh, that meets their needs? You know, I mean, even where I live, I mean, I I can't tell you the number of firms, both large and small, that are in the area, but a lot of them. And then there's kind of a lifestyle approach where, you know, someone gets comfortable, you're generating revenue, you know, it's, it's good. It's so much trouble to try to get new, you know, new clients and things like that, or you're too small to offer them the kind of holistic advice that we pride ourselves on, um, on offering, 
you know, planning, investing, estate planning, taxes. Um, and so that's, so that's an issue too. But lack of differentiation is huge. Right. Yes. I mean, you know, 14,000 you said, and, you know, yeah. how do you differentiate? And you cannot advertise, a, you know, like I said, market um, with, with the regulations that, that you guys have. Um, you know, we talked about scalability in this uh, industry. Uh, you know, obviously, with the pandemic, we're shooting this podcast interview during these times. You know, how yeah. has that affected, um, you know, wealth management and scalability? Well, this is where I really have to credit, again, um, Experian um, and uh, the vision of management because we've, you know, our infrastructure is completely video capable, um, et cetera. So we could immediately go to a shelter in place environment and, um, and have people be fully functional um, and, and safe and productive. So, um, but we use, we're on video all the time. And, you know, frankly, um, our clients um, uh, are satisfied with this approach too, because, you know, they want to be safe and they don't want to see us taking risks. So we, you know, I mean, nobody's having a face-to-face -face meeting and I don't, I don't know when we would even consider, consider that, especially, you know, when everyone is wearing like with that. this way of operating will continue even when, uh, you know, let's say this is over at some yeah. point. What are your um, thoughts on that? As yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, we are um, looking at various scenarios. Like, could we be an entirely virtual firm? Um, does that make sense in this environment? I mean, I do think, you know, there are some issues that you really have to consider from an from a human resources standpoint, and that is, you know, the issues with parents and young children and families, because, you know, working from home becomes very challenging when your kids are there and can't go to school and you're trying to, you know, um, uh, be their teachers and do your day job um, and things like that. So, you know, we have, I think as a culture, we have to figure that out. I, I think um, some people, prefer to to go to an office you know for that reason but you know that's that assumes that their children you know but they, that are getting educated and have child care available you know I mean um and that's been I think one of the biggest struggles but could we become a virtual firm we definitely have the infrastructure um to do it and you know so far clients have accepted it too because they're all sheltering um in place so uh, so I think there's a pretty interesting um, uh, idea and we'll see and we'll see how it emerges. I mean, it's always nice. You have to kind of balance that, too, with the importance of kind of just being in teams and having that spontaneous conversation among yourselves and your colleagues and seeing where that idea might go to how do you do that virtually? And I think we're still and many other firms in different industries, too, are kind of exploring that but it, it appears to be working i mean look at facebook you know they've said you know half of their development team is probably going to continue to work from home right yeah i mean it's definitely kind of worth to be seen um you know in that vein um what are some transformational innovation that you know disruption perhaps uh you know if you were to kind of 
talk about things about fu- in the future for wealth management, what are you seeing yeah. uh, as trending? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to give my personal opinion um, here because, again, I just try to look into the future too. And, you know, there, there's some very, very interesting trends, especially as it relates to gender. Um, women um, do not invest. I mean, there's a really interesting survey by BlackRock. Um, women only invest 40% as much as men do. Wow. So financial education, financial literacy is really, really important. How, how people become literate and feel confident and, want, and are able to take control um, of their investments and their financial futures is really important. And not just in this country, but I think globally, you know, I mean, that's a huge gap between women uh, sit in cash in their investments. A lot of the time, if you sit in cash, you don't keep up with inflation. You know, you have no growth associated with what you're doing. So do you think that is the case with women. Like you said, only 40%, uh, uh-huh. you know, what, what, what could it be? Like it's, I, I think there are some cultural, you know, and unconscious, uh, things that, you know, people absorb and are taught, um, uh, you know, from when they're younger. I mean, money is a very emotional topic. It has a, a lot of different meanings to different people. But I think, you know, standing back from that and saying, we need to educate you. Also, it's not taught in school. I mean, I never had took a class either in, you know, at Stanford, either undergraduate or business school about personal finance. It was all corporate finance. I came out of business school. I could do, you know, any corporate, you know, I was very proficient in corporate finance, but when it came to managing my own stock options, I had no idea. (laughs) You know, I mean, the tax rules, things like that. I mean, it's, it becomes a little bit overwhelming. So I, I do think education and lack of education is a key part of it. And I know I have a personal commitment to kind of change um, to change that as, as does Asperian in general. But, you know, you look at the statistics, that's a huge opportunity right there. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I think financial education is key and perhaps wealth management companies that can do that well and reach, um, you know, have the right reach, uh, to provide that sort of education is going to be key to their success. Yeah. Well, it, it is interesting. I mean, right now, um, um, a colleague and I are partnering with, and this is fascinating too, um, two millennial women, one works at Goldman, another works in private equity, but they saw this trend that women need more financial education and they started a not-for-profit called her.capital or hercapital.org. And we're partnering with them and it's all a virtual company right now, but it, we're partnering with them to do financial education. And so far, we've got over 300 people signed up for our first webinar that we're going to be doing. Wow. Yeah. That, that just I, says there's a need there, right? A huge need. I mean, yeah. just coming for a webinar, 300 yeah. signups, that is huge. Yeah, for, for a literally, you know, like brand new organization that has no brand name recognition. So, and we're super excited about supporting this. And, you know, the, the target market for this 
particular webinar series is 18 to 35. So people in college, people in the workforce, et cetera, you know, you come in and all of a sudden you've got all these decisions and maybe you've been impacted by, you know, the pandemic as well. I mean, maybe you have lost your job or maybe you're not working full time and, you know, what do you do? But, um, uh, but, but at any rate, so we're really going to have some fun with this and, um, and, and do some good as well, which is what it's all about. Are you, uh, is, is it maxed out? Can we put that link in our podcast? Um, Please do. Yeah, we'll definitely link our listeners. Um, um, yeah, it would, be, it would be great. But, you know, here, I love the whole notion. I mean, here are two women and they have big full-time jobs. I mean, one's at Goldman, one's in private equity. And yet they found this need and created this in their spare time. And it's all, it's all run by volunteers so far. But in a weekend, you know, their design team went to town. They figured out all the IT infrastructure. So we're doing this through YouTube and Yardstream. Right. So anyway, I mean, tapping into other um, innovations and people who have the same mission, um, I think is going to be a great, uh, a great thing to do. And, you know, when we have education is always the first step, right? Right, right. Um, so, Lorraine, um, you know, what are some personal causes that you support that, you know, that you want to share with your listeners? Um, you know, perhaps, um, you know, events or, you know, organizations or nonprofits, like, mm-hmm. you know, whatever okay. it may be for you. For, okay. That's, that's well, for you. yeah, my main passion actually is Stanford <laughs> and especially Stanford athletics. And I'm on one of the athletic boards called the Buck Cardinal um, okay. board. And what we do is raise money to um, help athletics. And let me tell you, college athletics is going through a really challenging time right now. I mean, getting athletes back on campus, getting them tested, getting them housed. Um, uh, will fans be back in the stadiums? Will everyone be playing to know, you know, to know fans? How long will a season last? Will you have to cancel it right away? I mean, those are, you know, and also we don't want to impact um, scholarships, you know, um, at all. So these are big, big, big challenges universities um, are facing. But anyway, um, Stanford is obviously, I mean, I feel like I owe so much of my professional life um, to Stanford. I'm so fortunate to have been a graduate and I love giving back. I always believe in paying it forward. I try to do as much alumni mentoring um, for undergraduates as I, as I can. And um, it's, it's really fun and, and valuable. I had a brilliant freshman that I was working with this year and we started working after the pandemic and during his first year of college, he had to go home, you know, and suddenly, and then he's, and then the first conversation we had, he kind of was wondering, how am I going to get a summer job? And I said, you know, you've got to look virtually. And he did, he has two amazing summer jobs now. That's you know, great. Getting an early start and contacting people and, you know, being personally innovative. So I do think, you know, a lot of good is going to come out of this. I just, you know, I'd like to see some opportunities for science to really have an opportunity to help, help us as well. But so any, anything related to Stanford, I love, I'm also very, very passionate about um, helping women. So Stanford women on boards is an organization that I'm really um, uh, passionate about. I mean, again, um, 
women, that's kind of one of the final frontiers. They're not very well represented on boards, public private company. So, and, you know, having diversity of opinion is very, very important to have a well-run, well-run board. So that's a big effort. Um, Also this financial education effort right now, we're working with her.capital and also an organization for women executives called Upward. Um, And they have over 3000 members in the Bay area. And we're going to be doing a series of webinars for them as well. So I feel like we're just getting started, but there's so much opportunity and I'm really excited about, um, uh, you know, see where this goes. Also, personally, I'm very um, concerned about voter suppression and want to put in some volunteer efforts. Yeah, those are very exciting initiatives that you talked about, especially uh, for women. Um, So we will, uh, her capital, we should definitely link that in our podcast notes. Um, You know, obviously with the pandemic, we're not doing in-person events in the past what events have you enjoyed uh, going to perhaps in the industry, wealth management or tech? Uh, You know, what what are some events that you've gone to in the past that perhaps in the future you look forward to attending? Um, I love Disrupt. That's one of the best tech conferences, I think, around. And it's, you know, they get um, uh, amazing people. I think Kara Swisher did some with um, Walt Mossberger did some unbelievable um, events. I don't know where those are going to go. Um, you know, Kara's obviously continuing um, to uh, to do a lot with her new company. Um, but, you know, anything where it shows thought leadership, I love. So right. you know, another topic that I'm very, very interested in is corporate governance. So, you know, Stanford has Director's College, which is... Um, uh, always eye-opening. And, you know, right now I'm just consuming a lot of webinars. Um, also, Stanford, the Institute of Economic and Policy Research has been doing some great, great, great um, uh, virtual events. So I'm, I'm kind of consuming as much as I can um, of virtual events. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope that, you know, uh, there will be a time when it'll be safe for people to gather together. But, you know, I hope the same with you know, sporting events too. I think all of us are kind of starved for some <laughs> to <Absolutely>. watch. <laughs> we we need, definitely need some lighthearted fun, especially sporting yeah. arena for that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Lorraine, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you in this podcast. You know, I think we've had a, our listeners would gain a lot of insight uh, from your leadership, tech leadership, as well as, you know, what you've talked about in the wealth management space. Uh, You know, it's been a real pleasure indeed uh, to have you on this uh, podcast. Well, I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for the opportunity to have this conversation. And I hope we can continue the conversation in the future. Best of luck to you. Thank you.